Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up, making things happen, making yourself crazy, surviving it, going on, having fun, doing your thing. I think that's kind of a catch-all uh, description. Um, I am very excited because my guest this week was another podcast I recorded in New York with uh, film and commercial director Victor Mignotti. Now, Victor's an old friend of mine. He directed the movies uh, Broadway Damage and This Time, and he also works a lot in, in commercials and has lots of interesting stories about that world. He directed a number of the installments of R. Kelly's Trapped in the Closet um, video series, uh, docu opus, um, so he's got really interesting stories about that. So. A uh, very cool, talented guy coming up. But first, I want to give a shout-out to some folks who donated to my virtual tip jar. I think it's still the Derek Hartley effect, but it really means a lot to me, and it helps me cover my expenses. There's not a lot of them, but they, uh, but they add up with uh, web hosting and all of that. So thank you to Douglas Alvey. Thank you to Steve Cortade. Uh, thank you to Tom Zabowski. Um, it's very, very much appreciated. And uh, also Norris Bishton. So if you want to help me cover my costs and keep things going, um, there's a donate button at the DennisAnyone.net website. I also post some pictures up there occasionally when I take pictures of, of things, when I'm talking about things on the podcast, and that's where that all lives. Um, you can also, you know, catch all the old episodes there, whatever you like. Um, I would love it if you liked Dennis Anyone on Facebook and um, just told people about the podcast. If you like what you hear, share it, post it, link it, all that stuff. All right, without any further ado, here is my friend Victor Mignotti. Hey there, I'm coming to you from beautiful Hudson Heights, New York, in New York City, and I am in the home of my friend Victor Mignotti. He's a filmmaker, he's a director, he's an editor, he's an all-round awesome guy. We just had lunch at a a really good El Salvadoran place, and it was so cheap and delicious. And how did you discover You just love this, uh, that, that place. You just happened upon it. Well, I, I, wherever I've lived, I like to explore the neighborhood and, right. and you know, really dive into it. Right. So, you know, just walking around, and I thought, well, you know, when in Rome, you got to try these things. Now, are you glad I brought the warm weather? Yes, oh my God, Dennis, thank, thank you me so on the record. much. I know. It's been a mild winter, but it's been, it, it's, it's dragged on, so it, it, it kind of felt like uh, climbing Runyon Canyon today. On those stairs? On the There's stairs. Long, a lot of stairs. Yeah. It's so beautiful, though. Yeah, it is. And thank you for, for letting me stay with you and, and uh, be here with you. Now, you, um, you've, you've directed films, Broadway Damage. I met you right around the time you made that movie. Right, right. A um, really wonderful gay-themed romantic comedy. And um, you recently went back and restored it and remastered yeah, it. Yeah, we did. Um, we had the opportunity to to go back to the um, the preprint, what they call the preprint elements, right. and restored it with a really great colorist at Goldcrest Post, this guy, John Dell Dell, and, you know, uh, make, make it look like kind of like it was always supposed to look on, on, the, on a television. Right. So that was great. So as a result, we were able to put out, we call it the 15th anniversary Blu-ray disc, so Fabulous. it looks really good and sounds really great, and uh, yeah, it's been fun, and, and it's also been uh, great to be able to finally have it on the digital platforms like iTunes and Hulu and all that that good stuff. Yeah, so, so people can enjoy it. It's right. such a terrific, sweet, fun movie, and such a slice of New York. What was it like Thank to you. go back and look at it again? Would, it, would you think of every day on the set? Would it all come back to you, or um, were you like... 
what was it like? I don't know. I hadn't seen it in a really long time, yeah. and and so to be in a in a di suite with it and looking at it on a big screen again, it it wasn't. Yeah, a little of that happened, but but for the most part, when I'm in those environments, those post production environments, I get very very technical focus it's all, business. It's, it's all about like does that shot match that shot and is the color right and can we get rid of that scratch and all the, you know it's it's more about that for me but it was you know it was kind of emotional because it was you know i had a great time making yeah. that movie so it was it was good to see it being uh, you know finally looking the way it was supposed right to look. for you know the way people saw it in movie theaters for posterity you right know? for posterity exactly um, exactly it's such a wonderful slice of new york is there something in that movie now that is not that way anymore in New York City, like a place that you shot or a neighborhood or is, does it, will it, will you look at it and go, oh, I wish it was still like that? Well, yeah. I mean, most of it isn't still like that. I mean, the neighborhood, the, uh, most of the film was shot within three blocks uh, of, let's say the corner of Perry and Bleecker right. Street in the West Village. And it still looks like that. But what, what is gone is virtually every single shop that you see in that movie because they were a lot of mom pa yeah. shops everything from those charming greeting card stores and places like Oscar Wilde right Oscar Wilde bookstore and the dance music stores and and all the stuff that certainly catered to the gay community and lilac chocolates and you know greasy spoons and diners and all those wonderful newsstands where you know where the kid holds up the copy of the Sondheim Quarterly you know right. all those things are are gone and, and I think they're all on people's phones now. It's all on people's phones, but also what's everything's there has, in the West Village has been replaced by by luxury stores. So everything yeah. is you know it's like Madison Avenue now. So it's very very different. But I think the thing that's uh, the thing that's it's sort of saddest for me about what's gone is there's sort of like like an innocence is gone from the West Village and certainly the ability to be any semblance of a bohemian. Yeah, in the West to be Village. young and sort of broken, yeah. struggling, and still right. be there. Right, and even when the movie was made, it was it was at the it, it was the that experience was on fumes for people. Those kids in the movie got very lucky that they got that apartment. Right, and you, you knew know, it, and, and I knew, knew it, and they knew, knew it. it. Everybody knew that they were really lucky. Yeah. So it was a little bit of a stretch, you know, like like Friends. You know, how did they really live in that? Yeah. That expensive apartment, but you know. How old were you when you moved to New York? Because you're from Philly originally. I'm from Philadelphia. I well, I actually came to New York to study film at NYU between my junior and senior year of high school. Oh wow! And I came to NYU, and they somehow or other let me take this class called Sight and Sound, which was like a sophomore level class. I guess I was sort of precocious. There you uh, go. And I had made a lot of films in high school, like lots of films. In Super 8, with sound, some without sound. They were very, very, um, looking back on them, they were incredibly ambitious yeah, movies. Yeah, I love and, it. Uh, yeah, so... so J.J. Like uh, Abrams. So they let me do that, and, um... Uh-oh, my cat's... My cat's Roger just pulled a pencil yeah, out of Roger, the thing. Roger, Roger, Roger wants to write a note to us. It's so cute, though. Like, why Roger. a pencil? I don't know. You have a really beautiful cat named Thank Roger. You. Roger. Roger is a Facebook star. He is a Facebook yes, I'm star. I'm not a Facebook star, but Roger certainly exactly. is a Facebook star. Exactly. Um, yeah. So we were talking about, you came to New York Film School when you were in high school. Yeah, when I was in high school. And then I went back. I had to go back to senior year. And this was, you know, um, I know, uh, I never talk about these things, but this was in the late 70s, okay? And New York was... A, extremely edgy, exciting place in those days. I know. And so to spend a summer at NYU in, in Greenwich Village and then to have to go back 
to suburban Philadelphia and finish senior year in high school was living hell. My parents were always like, we should have just let you stay. I know. How do you, you go know? back on the farm was, after you've been to Studio 54? It was real, yeah, it was really did hard. Did you go to Studio 54? Yeah, I did go to Studio 54. And What's your favorite memory of it? I always wanted to My favorite that. memory of Studio 54 was actually spending my 19th birthday and I got to dance with Liza Minnelli. That's fucking amazing. Like for, like for real. Like, like you and Liza were on the dance floor together, facing each other. Yes, facing each other, and dancing. And she was dancing with you. With me, yes. You weren't on the other side of the no. dance floor. No. <laughs> How did that happen? I don't know. It just happened because, you know, Because it was magic. Because it was magic and people danced with each other. And, you know, it wasn't a long time, but it, but it was... You know, know, is 19 old happened. enough to get in at that time? Uh, I or was it just... Yeah, I think, the, I think the drinking age at... For a handful of years, they had lowered it to 18. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they let you in if they liked you. It was, right. It was that kind of thing. But, but yeah, that was that was my memory. And just going... Did she with, know it was your birthday? No. I mean, I, I don't even think I even spoke to her other than yeah. hello. And, you right. know. But, um, but it, was, it was interesting because in those days, there was a lot of what I now call mentoring between yeah. gay men. And I was a kid. I was, you know a teenager still in the last years of my teens at, at, at college. And I had fallen in with this, these group of guys that were 27 years old. They were all like 27. Everybody that I met was 27 and 28. And they had these fantastic first jobs, you know, and they were smart and they were attractive and they had cool apartments. And, um, and these were the guys that kind of mentored you and they took you to studio 54 and they, you know, showed you how to dress and they, they showed you the cool restaurants and stuff like that when, you know, I didn't know what the cool anything was. I love it. And, and it was interesting. And, and I, I, I kind of feel like some of that is missing today. You know, people kind of get mentored from YouTube videos and things they read on the internet. Um, and a lot of it's, and, and interestingly enough, uh, many of those guys are still around. They still survive, although most of my friends perished. Yeah. During the AIDS, um, the beginning of the AIDS epidemic. So that was, um, you know. What song reminds you of that time when you first came to New York? When you hear it, you're like, Uh, I would probably, you know, it's it's obvious, but it it was such a a theme song, was Native New Yorker. Oh, yeah, the disco song. The disco song. I can't tell you how he sang it. It was like a one one. It was a a group named Odyssey, and they actually had, had quite a few songs that were wonderful that, you know, they played in the clubs. It was Odyssey. And and probably, um, you know, one of the other songs would be, it was just on the tip of my tongue. I was just hearing it. Um, Oh, This Time Baby. I remember that. This this Time Baby, You Won't Be In and Out of Love, In and Out Baby. Wow. Was it a disco song? Yeah, it was a disco song. And I think a lot of the the disco music kind of spoke to the... the, the, the world of one night stands and the yes, world of party liberation. and liberation. So many men and so little time. Yeah, so many men, so little time, and maybe maybe the next time, the next one's going to go better than this one. Yeah, and, you know they were they were uh, they were anthems. But but the thing about disco that I loved is that that um, it was very innocent. I always thought of it. It was like show music with a beat. Yeah, you know, it was hopeful. It had violins. It uh, you wanted to spin in your heels. You know, yeah. I love disco um, music. Yeah, it was, I just it was, love it. It was it was quite a thing. But now. I remember from watching Broadway Damage that that movie takes its title from something one of the characters describes. Yeah. And remind me again about it. It has to do with musical theater. Well, yeah. I, I, yeah, he's talking about uh, 
the two I can't remember exactly what they're talking about. The two characters are talking... The one guy's like a rock and roll guy, and the other guy's yeah. a show tunes guy. Right. And he accused him of having Broadway damage. You know, meaning you've just been damaged by... You've seen too, too many, many Broadway musicals. That you're, you know? oh, you're oh, romantic because yeah, of that. You're, you're yeah, basically you're you hopelessly romantic. Yeah, exactly. Broadway damage. I love it. Broadway Sweet. damage. Yeah. I, if, if I had to do that over again, I'd change the title. I don't think it was such a great title for a romantic comedy, but, you know... Live and learn. Live and learn. Live it's, and a learn. Cute, it's a memorable. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, that's I, for sure. And uh, you also have a documentary that you put out. Yeah, uh, a couple years this ago. Time. Yeah, we had a documentary uh, uh, called This Time. I, I got to spend uh, about five years following the Sweet Inspirations, who were uh, just an amazing group of people to, to spend time with. And they were the, Elvis's backup singers, right? Right. They had been the backup singers for in uh, Elvis's backup singers in the last seven years of his life and they right. toured with him and recorded with him and probably they're, they're, they had hits of their own like their most famous was a, was a song called Sweet Inspiration right um, but uh, they were they were um, probably most famous they're certainly most famous as back, background singers but also as Dusty Springfield's backup singers like they're the girls on Son of a Preacher Man wow, they're the girls amazing. on all the Dionne Warwick Burt Backrack Hits a lot and of there's the three of them. Uh, there were originally four of them. Four of them. Yeah, yeah. So I got to follow them. I got to follow this great gal, Pat Hodges, a New York cabaret artist, Bobby Belfry, and one of their producers, this guy Peter Angel, who I've worked with a lot in Los Angeles. He's right. a composer, music producer, singer. Song. He's not a singer; he's a songwriter. And um, and I followed them all for a period of time and cut all these stories together. And it's about. Making your way in, in music. It's about making your way in music. It's about persistence and longevity and the creative process and doing um, your work because you yeah. love your work. I really related to it. Yeah. And I thought it was poignant and beautiful and and some of those women's stories. Oh my God, what they've yeah. been through and, and that they, they keep singing and they still they yeah. still got it. It's really inspiring. Yeah, so. amazing. Yeah. And I think I think it also, you know, reminds me of uh, you know, if if you do what you love, and and as long as it doesn't make you insane, it'll keep you young. Yeah. And I remember going to see Bobby Short at the Cafe Carlisle, and he was like eighty. I don't know how he was like eighty five when he died, right. and he was still up there singing like a little cherub, and it was just amazing. I said, okay, this is how you stay young. That's what, what I you thought. Watching Joan Rivers. Do oh, for comedy. sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's a great. You know, of she, gosh, she worked harder than anybody. Yeah. And writing those cards on her hands and knees, like that was who she was, and and right. she loved it, and uh, so. Um, you do you direct commercials? Yeah, sometimes co- commercials is my my bread and butter. God That's bless how I, pay, how I pay the New York rent. But you've done so many different, diverse kinds of things, different yeah. products. I was just watching something you did online. Uh, it was for a bank, but you got to interview the people that founded the Vita Coco, mm-hmm. and I was fascinated with their story. I was like, right. I was like, I love coconut water. We didn't even have it until a few years ago. It wasn't even a thing. And then and then hearing. Um, him talk about it and you obviously shot it and did the interview right that must be one of the cool things about doing commercials it's it's always something different yeah you're brought into different worlds and oh for sure because it's um you know it's very different than making a feature film that you've written or a documentary that you you decide to go out and shoot because that's you know that's your vision When, when you work as a filmmaker in advertising it's like you're using. You, I'm using my craft as a filmmaker, as a director, as a, a writer or editor, in the service of advertising, in the service to the ad agency, who is in the service to the client yeah. that's hired them. So, 
it's really like you know it is a service job and i and i i, I approach it that way because you know just like the movie that i'm now trying to make is the most important creative thing in my life the selling you know um i just did a campaign for slim fast right selling you know more slim fast and making the shareholders happy is the most yeah, important that's the, goal. that's the goal so you know everything that i do has to be um you know aimed at that goal but it is really interesting because in in the business world the people that you're working with as the clients they're coming from all kinds of backgrounds and it's and it's fascinating. It's always fascinating to hear the story. You know, how did you become the CEO of this company? How did you, you know, invent co- you know bring coconut water, right. for example, to the United States? How did you? So it's uh, it's interesting, and it involves an enormous amount of sensitivity. I would s- imagine, in terms of like actual filmmaking, I'd say, in actual directing. You know, as a as a director, mm-hmm. I'm probably maybe it's ten percent directing. And ninety percent human relations. Human relations, and making sure everybody's kind of happy and things keep flowing and moving smoothly. Um, right, because it's it's an environment where there's there could be a lot of cooks and a, and a, there are and, a lot of cooks. and, and there's a lot there of people cooks. are nervous and they you know and, yeah, and you yeah. have to kind of keep everything like we've got this. It's going to be fine. Right. It's going to be great. Right. It's a super. Uh, the world of advertising is super fear based. Yeah. It's, it's all fear all the time. It's really tough. People are scared. You know, the ad agencies, they want to keep their clients. The yeah. clients want to sell more stuff. And what's interesting, it's been interesting being a, a, a gay man working in advertising as a, as, a, as a commercial director because, you know, the, the folks that, a lot of the folks I work with, even the gay, the gay folks in advertising, are very committed to the mythology of the American dream. Right. And all the trappings of that, from right. the, the house and the two cars and the kids. They're, not and, even in their work, but in their life as well. In they're their like, life. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Their lives, generally speaking, look like the American dream. They right. might be the Manhattan version of it or the Santa Monica version of it, but it, but and it's important, you know. And it, it's been uh, sometimes it's been tricky for me, at least when I started doing it initially, um, because I grew up in a very suburban American dream kind of environment in the suburbs of Philadelphia. But I spent most of my adult life living in a gay ghetto, Greenwich Village, or when I moved to, to Los Angeles, right. I lived in the Hollywood Hills. And so I was always sort of in a gay ghetto. So in a, in a sense, whenever I go into the, the, the ad world, I, I kind of felt like, I don't know how to explain it. Well, maybe like I was going to the zoo and watching the animals in the cage right. because I didn't, there was a part of you that was watching from the outside. Right, watching from the outside, but I had to, um, you know, sort of learn to understand why all these things were so important right. to the clients. What motivated them. Yeah, and what motivates them. And, uh, you know, and and people want to um, to grow. You know, the clients want to grow their businesses. Right. And, and, you know, we all want to grow. So everything was sort of like growth. So I have to sort of say focused on growth. I don't know if that, that makes sense. Where's the most unusual place you've gone to make a commercial? Or was there an environment or something that's like, how did I end What a weird place to have ended up with filmmaking. Oh, yeah. Well, there, there, there's, there's often a weird place. You know, because movie making is an illusion. You know, sometimes right. you're sitting literally in the gutter between two parked cars with a camera and you're trying to get a shot or whatever. I know one of the, the, the most um, the strangest uh, experiences was 
shooting an abandoned shopping mall, which is kind of not an uncommon thing to do or an abandoned. Right. But it feels like a, you're in a post-apocalyptic. You feel like, yeah, post-apocalyptic. Whatever that Dawn of the Dead movie right. was. And it was a commercial for Iron City Beer. Yeah. Um, actually, it, it, to answer your, your question that you showed yeah. me on your card, what was one of the worst jobs? Yeah. This is, was one of the worst jobs I've ever had. Um, it was an opportunity to be extremely creative, though, and it was for um, Iron City Beer, and that's a beer brand out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Okay. And they had asked their actual customers to write ideas for commercials. And some girl wrote in uh, that she dreamed of going to a supermarket where they sold men. And right. And the men were dressed as different food items right. and such. And finally she would get to the beer department and she would pick out the Iron City Beer Man. Right. So we went to this abandoned supermarket in Ohio and built showcases and coolers and refrigerators that were man size. Wow. And we filled them with like a hundred guys, you know, like, so in the freezer were department. Were they hot or all there, kinds of guys? All kinds of guys. Right. Just, this is Pittsburgh. Okay. Was it Magic Mike? No, it was not Magic Mike. And, you know, we put guys with dry ice in the freezers and in yeah. overcoats and they were shivering and we had bodybuilders in the meat department. Of course. And it was Makes very, sense. it was very, very, um, it was, it was very amusing. So... But it was the but it was the worst. It was the worst job because um, there. I don't think the client really wanted me to be the director. I see. They wanted somebody else, and the ad agency I think kind of railroaded, right, me over them. So they were they were very very difficult, and they made the job truly living hell yeah. for me and the entire crew. Like for example, we we paint a lot of it was pink. It was very girlish, and she was right. wearing this pink Chanel suit. And she was like pushing the shopping cart in these really high heels, and you know she had guys in the shopping cart, right? Right, amazing. It was, it was cute, right? And um, and uh, you know we had painted the floor pink, and then the, ag- the then the client decided, or the agency decided, we don't want the floor pink, oh, we God. want it white. And so you have like like a hundred extras. You have a dolly with rubber, black rubber wheels that have to roll down the aisle. So we actually had to like repaint the floor white. Well, the crew stood there with blow dryers and fans for and like three hours while everybody's on the clock. You know, it was like, yeah. and they did that kind of thing over and over. And it was awful. And yeah. I remember we were staying in Pittsburgh and every night coming back from the shoot, we passed the airport and I, I said, <laughs> and, you're just like, and I thought to myself, are you allowed to quit directing a TV commercial? <laughs> like, will you never work again if you do yeah. that? If you go to the airport. It was, yeah. It was the one and only time I ever cried. Yeah. Over a job. Wow. Yeah. Interesting. It was such torture. Because, you know, you're trying to do really yeah. good work, and they were making it really difficult. <laughs> As I was watching some of your commercials on your website, I thought, does the director have much say in casting, or do the ad people pick the cast? Or You know what I mean? Like, you would see a spokesmodel or whatever. In your role, how much do you have to do with casting? Um, it depends on the job. Generally mm-hmm. speaking, I, quite a bit to do with the casting, in that I... Um, I make recommendations for who I think is going to do the best job. Certainly, you know, you have the person that you like, the actor right. that you like the best, um, and then you have your reasons. But very often in a commercial, it's 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 you're mixing, you're trying to uh, you're trying to parse out like a demographic. So you need like one right. African American, one yeah. gal, one older woman, one what they now call ethnically ambiguous, which is my favorite. Ethnically ambiguous. Oh my god. And, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look for that on Scruff. I'm gonna search for that. Yeah, on ethnically Scruff. ambiguous. Yeah, I love ethnically ambiguous. <laughs> I love it. So there's that. You know. So very often the best person for the job 
the best actor does not get the job. They're not the right look, Because they demo. don't fit the right look, yeah. and you have to... Of course. You know, you're, you're kind of making a soup. Yeah. What is it about your aesthetic, or if, if say, an ad agency that worked for you before came up with a certain job, and they're like, oh, that's a Victor Mignotti job. Is there something that you... Something to do with uh, the look of something, or the, the relationship with the cast, or the, a naturalism? Is there something that's like your lane? Well, I think my lane, at least in... This is sort of like my second go-round as a commercial director. The, sure. the first go-round was like big, in-your-face comedy. Right. Um, and there's just less and less of that all the time. And in my, the second phase of my career, it's really been more about finding the heart and soul in the moment. Right. And trying to find humanity in a moment. And um, because people relate to something... They see it, or they yeah, feel they it, see it, even if they're if it's they not in the dialogue it. or whatever. And and sometimes a, a lot of that happens in the editing. Yeah, um, you know when you've you've captured a lot of moments and you find that one look or the glint in the person's eye right. that communicates love or warmth or affection or whatever that thing is. So in you know like I guess like a simplistic way to explain it, it would be you know things that make you feel good. Yeah, um, commercials that make you feel good, but at the same time it's really looking for the humanity in a situation that really is ultimately hard sell. Sure. You but if, if somebody has a certain smile or a look in their eye, right. a guy looks at a girl in a restaurant right. in a certain way, we, feel, we, we connect to it right. emotionally. Exactly. And, you're, and you're, you have a skill for finding that. Finding that and creating hopefully it, creating, creating, creating it. it, creating it. A lot of what you, what you do as a filmmaker is create an environment on the set where the, that kind of feeling can blossom in front of the camera so that when you turn the camera on, you're capturing it. It's their live and they're... Right, and then, yeah. you know, you go into the editing room and you pull yeah. all those little gems that hopefully you've captured. I love it. I, one of your commercials on your on your website was in Spanish. Now, do you speak Spanish? No, I don't speak How Spanish. How did you deal with yeah, that? that we, we, shot that, we shot that with um, Raul de Molina, yeah. who's like this famous Univision star. His like, show is like bigger than Ellen. Right. Um, his name is... His character is called El Gordo. Right. And... Um, and no, I don't speak Spanish, but I speak Italian, and uh, and it's close enough. And I actually, I was really nervous about it, but um, worked out. It worked out. You know, yeah. it was easy, and I had a really good script supervisor that helped right. me out. And uh, did he say all the words? Did he say yeah? You guys said all the words. Okay, yeah. right. But, but on. once you, fin- you know, yeah. it, it, it was actually no problem at all. Um, one of my favorite things on your resume, and I sometimes forget this, and then I remember it. You shot R. Kelly's "Trapped in the Closet" mm-hmm. video, and it was a—it was more than one video, right? Yeah, it was yeah. like epic. Yeah, it was epic. How, yeah. Was it a bunch of different shoots, or was yeah, it, it was a always... bunch? Of, it was a bunch of different shoots. Um, I got involved from the very first. How one. do you get that job? Well, I got—I got, uh, got the job is—is is I was um, developing a producer in LA, Ann Carly, had optioned. Uh, one of my screenplays that we right. were trying to, to produce as a film, the film called Dee Dee's Glamorama about a, a beauty parlor. And, um, and then she had hired me to write a movie with Cool Modi, the rap artist called The Fat Pack. It was right. like, a, like a family-oriented uh, hip-hop movie sure. about these old-school rappers who were trying to make a comeback in Las Vegas. And we were writing it for all these old-school rappers and Justin Timberlake. And, um, and anyway, Anne, like, we were out to lunch one day. She said, you got to come back to my office and... And here's something. I'm like, okay. And she put on the first five chapters of Trapped in the Closet. And I was like, I didn't even know what I was... I didn't understand what I was hearing. It was really out there. It was really funny. It was... 
over the top. It, I didn't really... Un- it, it's almost like it created its own art form. It's like it's its own thing. Yeah, well, it's a singing soap opera. Yes. It's, it's a, I, I call it, I've always called it a hip opera. Yeah. Because it's hip hop, it's sung, it's, you know, it's spoken, it's... It's its own thing. But there's a, a style musical. to it that's larger yeah. than life. Yeah, yeah. That's broad, uh, That that's dramatic and juicy and scandalous and, right. you know, it's all of that. It's naughty, you know? It's, so she plays you... So she played me the thing and, uh, and she told me, she said, I think I want to try to make this into a movie. And I was like, okay. And uh, anyway, that was, the, that was my first experience with it. And she was working with this director, Jim Swafield, and they, and who had worked with Robert before, and they got to Robert meaning R. Kelly. R. Kelly. Yeah. And um, they shot the first five. Right. You know, kind of, you know, let's see, it's a big experiment. And she brought me in to edit. I'm I'm an an editor as well as a director. Right. And uh, she brought me in to edit them. And um, I will never forget going to the editing room the first day. And watching the dailies for Trapped in the Closet, I was like, oh my God, what on earth is this? Right. I mean, I was like, it was, I had no idea it was going to be that. Because when I, I'd only heard it, you know what I mean? But I didn't understand. I, I it wasn't even, I don't think, I, I mean, I knew it was him doing all the voices. Right. But I think until I saw the footage, I didn't, it didn't. Well, other it. actors then started. Other actors lip syncing him. Yes. Right. It was crazy. So I edited the first five, and of course it was this huge, you know, pop culture sensation. Right. And then uh, when they did, then they did, they did a bunch more, and I cut all of those, and then they um, did the next bunch, which was like 13 of them, and then they hired me to, to direct them as well as edit them. So I was involved in the first 25, 24, There were 24 or 25? No, there were even more. They went on to do even more. So I think they're like 36... And each together. one is probably how long? They they they're it's unusual in that they they don't have a fixed length. They vary in length from about ninety seconds to over four minutes. So every chapter had a different. So, length. just to give me an idea, and you probably don't even know. Like if you put them all together and ran it as a movie, how long would it be? It's ninety minutes. It's ninety, 90 minutes, minutes. All the whole. Yeah, thing. because they run it. IFC acquired it, yeah. and IFC runs it as as a special event movie. They run it regularly. It's so. Yeah. What I found watching it again is that like, it you're it's nuts. Yeah. It's crazy, but it's deliriously entertaining. Mm-hmm. It is so entertaining. Yeah. It's kind of hard to it's kind of hard you to look away because walk, you can't believe it because it's so over the top. But yet it was so it knew what it was like it it wasn't campy in no. a way that like oh they don't they think they're doing this but they're actually doing this. Well, that was what was tricky about working on it because you know I'm this like guy who grew up on Broadway musicals you know coming from right. Greenwich Village into the hood okay the south side of the Chicago yeah you know, Greenwich the hood as created by you know superstar recording artist, but right. it's still, it's the hood and that's his reference point, you know? So I had to really learn all about the hood and how that worked and how all these characters interacted. Um, and also there is something like kind of whack and wacky and offbeat about it. And that was the sensibility of it. So I had to, you know, learn about that sensibility and, um, and I don't know, I just kind of surrendered to it. You, know, you we, just had to give into it and say, yeah. oh, that's what this and, is. And by the time I got to direct one of them, 
I had edited, edited. twelve of them. So and I spent what so works. much time yeah. with them all. Yeah. And I've been in the studio with them and, and I've watched the process. So I knew what the world felt like and looked like and what it should be and what it shouldn't be, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So. What's your favorite memory of working with R. Kelly? Uh let's see. Uh well, he was really game, you know, he would, he would do, he was game. He, you know, if something wasn't working, you know, he'd be, he'd be always happy to try it another way. Right. Um, what was my favorite? Well, probably being in the hot tub with him while he's smoking cigars right. in his house. And I'm like, how did I get here? Not, this is not part of the shoot. You're no, just hanging out. Not part of the shoot, just hanging out. You're just hot tubbing with him. We're in the hot tub. And he had this house that, that had a lagoon in it. Of course. It was crazy. That might be the title of this podcast. He had this house that had a lagoon. Yeah, had this house that had a lagoon. You know that, but no, In Chicago, right? Yeah, we shot it all in Chicago. I don't know. There was, there was so many just fun moments you know yeah. like like you know like what like he wanted a helicopter we did this car car chase scene where the police car was chasing them and he wanted a helicopter a police helicopter well there was no budget for a police helicopter so i said well you know what let's go to the drugstore the toy store and buy one of these really cheap looking toy helicopters and we'll fly it on a piece of monofilament on the green screen yeah and we'll make it look cheesy right you know what I mean? And that'll be the helicopter. And and the fact that he was, like, so game to do something that might not work. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because he really wanted a helicopter. When he wants a helicopter, he wants a helicopter. I'm like, right. no, no, no. Let's go get a, like, two ninety nine cheap-ass yeah. toy and try something really goofy. Yeah. You know? And he, and he would go for that. And, that you know, that, that kind of stuff. I appreciate it. I would think working on that, would there would be some kind of takeaway about audacity or like, you know, something that you thought, can this catch on or are people going to laugh at this or what are they going to think of it? And then just committing to it all the way, at least from his part and everyone that worked on it. And, and cause who makes all these videos that become a 90 minute film? Like it just seems like it wasn't, it's its own thing. Like nobody did anything like that. Well, he was, you know, really committed to, that world, and whether you love it or you hate it, or you think it's high art, or you think it's tacky, right? Um, what it has going for it is it's it's committed to its. It vision. went for it. It's really committed to its vision, and you know, and he really, um, you know, channeled it so that when we were, when we were, when he was in the studio recording it, and he was doing the the part of a woman, sometimes he would take a scarf and tie it around his head like like a gal, and he would smoke a cigarette like a woman or if he was the preacher he would stand like the preacher he was very method in that regard and also in you know in that sense he you know he channeled it and certainly for me what i took away from it is is he's an incredibly uh prolific guy and a lot of his best work nobody gets to hear like he's done a wonderful series of recordings uh for children that are it's about um how music works and about all the different parts of the orchestra, kind of like Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf, yeah. where they talk about all the different sounds in the orchestra. Well, he has an R. Kelly kind of version of that, and he has to, did a big thing with, about African music, and unfortunately, the labels are not releasing that stuff, right. but that's the really... He, he's a really intelligentsia kind of side to artist. R. Kelly that, unfortunately, people aren't getting to see. I wish they would. Well, what's it like being a gay guy working in that world, being in that world? Was it ever a thing? 
Uh, was it ever a thing being... Uh, no. Good. No, it was never a thing at all. No, Good. No, not at all. Love it. Not at all. Uh, something else that you worked on, and I remember this because it was probably the last season I watched, was you did the real world New Orleans. Oh, yeah. With uh-huh. Danny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I always thought Danny had the perfect boyfriend because he was a little blurry. <laughs> he was like the idea of a boyfriend. You can project whatever you want on him because he's blurry. Oh, my God. And, right, you know. True. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. But you, he wasn't blurry to you because you no, were... No, he was not blurry to me at all. <laughs> what was that like to work on? Well, I had never worked on anything like that. Yeah. And... Um, and I had never worked on anything that was quite so freeform, meaning there was no script. Right. And, um, I had never shot anything on videotape. We'd always shot everything on film. Yeah. It's because as a director, you're following, you're not dictating the action. You're just following. Yeah. You're, you're documentarian. And, and, and the real world, uh, really was shot with an enormous amount of pure documentary, um, integrity. They, they did not zhuzh things. They didn't tweak things. They didn't encourage the cast to do this or to say this to that one or to create a conflict. Yeah. They cast in a way that where they hoped there would certainly be conflict and that maybe somebody would get a crush on somebody else. But really we were just documentarians like flies on yeah. the wall. Yeah. Um, and then once for a week, months from, yeah, for, it was about, I think 19 weeks. Wow. Schedule. And it was really interesting. It was interesting, um, to be a part of this thing that had, you know, been legendary. Yeah, it, was and it was fascinating sociologically. And I, I really enjoyed it. Um, it, but it's not a director's medium. It's right. not, no, it's an editor's medium. It's the producer's medium, the story editor's medium. Um, you know, maybe it's different now because I know, uh, I don't know what they're doing on the real world, but I know so much of what they call reality television is highly produced and all the moments right. are produced. And, um, you know, that's not very exciting to me. But. Right. No, I remember I was on the first season of Kathy Griffin, my life on the D list. Okay. Uh, as one of the sidekicks or whatever. And we were, re- we were really friends and it was real. And, um, they basically followed her around all the time. Right. And there was one moment where they said, we need you guys to go to lunch and talk about this one thing. Right. And they only did it once. And mm. It was near the end. Oh, that's, that's good. And they didn't tell us what to say, but it was like, but I think that was the direction that reality TV was going. And, and then right. it became every episode. Every was, episode is produced. Da, 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 da. But yeah. in that one, yeah. it was it was pretty much, we're just going to follow her around. And then there was that one moment where they were like, we, you know, we need to create this, yeah. this conversation. Yeah. But I, 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 enjoy, I enjoyed the real world because... It, it, at, at that point, the show really cared about the, the characters and the stories and, and the fact that these, these kids were, you know, in a, in, at a time in their life where they're making like transitions. And, and when you put the camera in front of them, the transitions kind of got sped up and amplified. Yeah. Um, and, uh, it was, it, it was a responsibility. You know, there, there was one gal was suicidal one night dealing with Danny and his boyfriend. That was like heavy shit. I was like, Oh my God, this is not what I signed up. I thought it was just going to be a director. Right. So it was like, it was sort of like being a director and a psychologist and like a chaperone. Yeah. It was, it was an odd responsibility. I have to say it was not what I thought it was going to be, but I, I did enjoy, I did enjoy it that, that particular time. Yeah. It was pre pre Katrina, right? 
Yes, it was, it was before Hurricane Katrina. Yeah, it was in 2001. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was yeah. much later. Yeah. Um, and now you've got another feature script that you're working on, which I'm yeah. so excited to hear. Tell me about it. <laughs> it's called Critter in the Bitters. It's, um, it takes place in the West Village. It's another West Village story. But Love it's it. about a guy and a gal, best friends for years and years and years. They're both on the verge of turning 50. Um, she is a Jewish princess born and raised on the Upper East Side who has a failing therapy practice. He's an ad guy that's in deep, deep credit card debt because he's supporting his mother in assisted living. And uh, she decides to go to war with the LGBT street kids, the poor street kids that hang out in front of her building. Right. And make a lot of noise and disturb the peace and quiet of this otherwise Carry on. tranquil yeah. neighborhood. And uh, one of these kids befriends her friend and creates a, a, a huge rift in their relationship. So the movie is very much about the families we choose. Um, it's about how do you deal with getting older? Well, everything around you is getting young. Right. When all of your touchstones have either disappeared or, or changing. Um, how do you deal with being in relationships with parents getting older? It's, um, it's, it's a... It's a dramatic comedy, so you know we're we're just getting started with the process of trying to attach talent and looking for a producing partner and all that. Well, that I good love stuff. it. If you're if you're here, if you know anyone, you're listening out there. We want to make this movie happen. All I right. want it to exist. Sounds good. That's so fun. I love that idea. Um, you pick some questions from the observation. Oh there. boy. Okay. All right. What would you like to do in a job that you haven't gotten to do yet? Um, in a job I, I haven't gotten to do yet. I would like to have, number one, the next job, I'd like to have a little more time to rehearse. Right. It'd be really nice. Um, I would like to, I would like to do a musical. Love it. Yeah, I really want to do a musical. That'd be amazing. Yeah. My right. own musical, not, not somebody else's musical. Yeah. An original. Yeah, original musical. I love it. Yeah. What was your favorite or most memorable birthday? Well, aside from dancing with Liza at Studio 54. I know. When I turned Jesus. 20, when I turned 21... At that point in my life, I'd had a, I had made a student film that, that started... It was a gay film and started showing in these gay film festivals. And I was meeting all these really interesting people. And I was always the baby, you know? Right. And I had an, a, a birthday in my East Village apartment. And I had a big party and I had all these people come. And uh, my friends bought me coconut um, tarts from Chinatown, like 21 mm -hmm. of those. And it was just an interesting, I don't know, bohemian kind of... East Village. Artistic. Memory. Artistic. I remember Richard Schmeekin was there. He was the, the guy that was the editor. He's no longer with us. He was the, the editor of the Times of Harvey Milk. Oh, wow. Cool. Like, it, was, it was an interesting group of people. Nice. Yeah. yeah. My therapist came. I love it. <laughs> Your therapist came. It's so good. I know. That's the one and only time I ever saw him, I think, outside of the office. If there was a doll of you that talked, what would it say when you pulled the string? Oh, the doll. What would it say? It would say... Perpetual anticipation is good for the soul, but it's bad for the heart. Wow. Which is Did a line. Did you make that no, up? I wish I made that up. No, that's Stephen Sondheim. It's from yeah. A Little Night Music. Oh, right. Yeah. It makes sense. Right. It resonates. Right. If you had to change careers tomorrow, what would you pursue? Well, tomorrow I'm not... I, I ask that because I'm looking for ideas. Well, tomorrow I'm not quite <laughs> sure, but if I had to do it all over again, yeah. I might... I probably would have gone become a, a contractor, a housing contractor, and I would build luxury seaside homes in South Jersey and the Hamptons because there's always a market for luxury seaside homes. <laughs> Seriously. 
and you make people really happy. And it's production. It's just like film production. What I love about film is I like the team. I like making something. I like to have something to show for myself at the end of the day. And I think, you know, building houses would have been good. Would have been I, I come from scratch a, that. A I come from a family that was involved in, in, in contracting and that kind of. Oh, work. that's so cool. I think it was part probably in my blood and. Uh, I never knew that. Yeah. Uh, worst job you ever had? Is it the one that we talked yeah, about earlier? Yeah, it's the, the the beer commercials. Now, do you want me to ask this one? Oh, sure. Yeah. What's the most crazy thing you've done in pursuit of a crush? The craziest thing I've done in pursuit of a crush. Well, I've done many crazy things. Probably being uh, having been a stupid romantic fool. I don't think I am anymore. I don't know. I'm not sure. No, but anyway, actually, uh, one of them is is immortalized in Broadway Damage. I, yeah. I had a terrible crush on the guy that worked at the card store. Right. And I um, and he read books. And I brought him a copy of uh, Emil Zola's book, Germinal. Right. Just exactly like the kid does in the film. Ah. So, so that was like How did life it go? imitating art. Did it, did it open uh, the Did door? not go very well. Did no. not go well. No, just like in the movie. He was like, thank you. <laughs> yeah, no. Who's the crazy guy with yeah. the book? Yeah, yeah. So. But see, you got, a, you got a scene out of it. You got, got a scene out of it. Out of exactly. It. exactly. Um, when did you fall in love with them? Was there a moment if you look back and you go, oh, like, well, I, yeah, I, I started making films when I was 13 years old. My dad had a regular eight movie camera, which I started playing with. And then I guess I showed enough interest in it. And he went out and bought me a, a super eight camera with the cartridge. Right. And, um, and I started making films and I loved it. I loved, um, I came from a musical family, my, mm-hmm. my mom and, and my grandfather and, and her uncle uh, were musicians in the Philadelphia Orchestra and I studied the clarinet and was sort of being kind of guided towards music but I didn't understand how to play Mozart and make it my own mm-hmm. uh, film I was able to immediately make it my own so I think I knew that this was something that made me feel good it was something I could control love it. control was a huge part of why I love film because you control what's in the rectangle you control how long the rectangle is on the screen until you cut to the next rectangle with the other information. So very much like control was a part of it. But my mom took me to see uh, Francois Truffaut's Day for Night because I got a That's good report so cool. card. And watching the movie making process in that movie was like, okay, I got to do this. This is if, if I already had started doing it, but this is now I knew I was like, I got to yeah, do this. Yeah, this is for me. Yeah. How old yeah. were you? Probably 14. Love that. Yeah. And the idea about control, because you felt like you maybe didn't have as much in no, your life. And no. You need, and this was, yeah. No, I had no control. Right. Whoops, it's, all it's all good. It's all good. No, I felt like I had no no control in my life. Right. And uh, I mean, I don't think I f- knew that that's what I felt. But I think right. looking back on it, you know. It was gay, a- teenage kid in the 70s. What do you do? You know, what do you do with that? Um, right. But I could... You dance. Go out and make my movie. <laughs> right, right. And I, I took my Super 8 camera and I wrote scripts and I made films. And and I went up into this little room that we had in the house where I could work on that stuff. And, and I was safe and, and I felt really good. And Did you have flew, like you know? fr- friends that would act in them and stuff? Yes. Were you always corralling the I was always corralling kids? friends. I was really, really good. I wish I was as good now as I was then at talking people into doing what I needed them to do. That's so good. <laughs> yeah, for sure. What's one of your films that you made that you look back and you're like, you know what? I was onto something. That holds up. Or that, like, tell me about one of your films. 
Um, well, they, 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 they sort of evolved. They, they, they were kind of squeaky clean at first. Right. And then I went to see The Exorcist. Like you do. And, uh, and I was like, oh, I want to do something really scary and dark. So yeah. I did this whole... Um, uh, it's called, it was called The Resolution. It was this good versus evil story, which looking back on it was like... This poor guy was like was fighting with his sexuality. That, right. I mean, that's really probably what it was really about. Right. But we shot it in in uh, my father was involved in a business that was a granite quarry, and we shot it in this granite quarry. And there was a dance, and there were demons, and there was a struggle between good versus evil. And I mean, it was like so the opposite it of what you would think epic. I would do. Yeah, it was really. Oh no, it was like thirty minutes. It was really epic and. Yeah, I made a few things like that. Oh, that's those so films, cool. those you films still have were, them yeah, somewhere? I have all of them. They were all transferred to tape. Good. Yeah, no, I have all those things. Um, yeah, no, they were epic and, and they were they were fearless because I didn't give a shit what anybody thought. I wasn't trying to do the thing that I thought people wanted. I wasn't doing the thing that I thought was going to get financed. Right. You know, I was just doing the thing. And you know, you bought you know twenty rolls of Super Eight film and. You, you had the cassette recorder and you clapped your hands and you hoped that it stayed in sync for more than 10 seconds. Right. And, uh, you know, it was, it was a real, it was a real thrill to That's do so that cool. stuff. Yeah. And to get all your friends to do it because it took a lot of, um, a lot of convincing. Sometimes. Well, it was a big deal. Yeah, it was a big deal. <laughs> it's still a big deal to it's talk people into doing stuff. So everybody's busy. It's the fearlessness. The fearlessness. That's, do you ever wish you could tap back into that in a way? It's like, oh, I want to be more fearless. Yeah, every single day. Yeah. The closest I've gotten to that recently was was going to Italy and uh, shooting a couple of music videos. I watched them. I wrote down really. the name of the guy because I love the song. I love Italian music. Andrea De Rosa? Yes. Yeah, he's great. He's yeah, cute. I got hooked into a, a, a record label there and... Um, and I went. And God, I'm directing cute Italian guys in music videos. Yeah, it was pretty great. I could, that could be it. That it could be enough. And also, I, I I was the director of photography also, so I actually photographed them. Beautiful. And that's something that I think you know. If you ask me about like like what job I would like to do, yeah, I've never done that professionally. Meaning, I'm too scared. I've been too scared to actually operate the camera on somebody else's nickel. I know I, I'm perfectly adequate at it, and right. But um, so I think maybe the next thing would be like next time somebody calls me for commercial, say you know what, maybe I'll DP this one too. Mm, there you go. And that would be a really nervy ass thing for me to do. But you would want to. It, it, you like the idea of the challenge, and I like the it. idea of the challenge. It would have to be the right. Yeah. If it was, if if, if it was the kind of commercial where I didn't have to deal with dialogue, I was right. just shooting, you know, beautiful scenery or vignettes or people yeah. laughing and having a good time. You know, but if I had to worry about getting a dialogue performance out of somebody, I don't think I would want a DP. Not yet, anyway. Interesting. Yeah. Just for the challenge yeah. of it, you know? So, some of your stuff's out there. Uh, tell yes. people how they can watch your movies. Um, you can, uh, Broadway Damage, you can see on, uh, on Blu-ray and Fantastic. DVD. You can get that on Amazon.com. You can nice. get that at Wolf Video. Nice. Um, dot com. You can, uh, wa- you can stream it on, um iTunes and Amazon Sweet. Prime. Uh, this time you can stream on Amazon Prime, and um, I think that's. Oh, and you can see it on Vimeo. Nice. Uh, this time is the music documentary, and you can also get the DVD and the Blu-ray on Amazon and at eBay. There you go. Those two entrapped in the closet. You can see everywhere, and they have yeah. DVDs available. You know, 
Wherever DVDs are sold. No, it was nominated for a Grammy. Did yeah. You, did you go? Yes, I sure did. What was that like? That was really cool. Was it in L.A. or New York? Yeah, it was in L.A. at the Staples Center. Nice. Yeah, it was really cool. Did you win? No, we didn't win. I wish we won. Oh. I wish we won. Uh, no, we lost to... Um, we were up against Madonna for some concert film and the Martin Scorsese film about Bob Dylan. Okay. And the Martin Scorsese film. Yeah. One. Come on. Yeah, but we were in good company. That's right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, so it was, yeah, it was fun. It was, an it was a crazy night. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, cra- it was crazy. I mean, uh, it was crazy because I, you don't eat at these award shows. Right. Like, you're basically locked in and there's no food and it was like blood sugar. So it was like a hunger It was a difficult ordeal. Right. <laughs> but other than that, it was, that it was heavy. Yeah, it was really exciting. It was fun. I love it. it. And you also, like that. you also have a website where people can learn a little bit more about right. what you do. Yeah. And it's victormignotti.com. Victormignotti.com. M-I-G-N-A-T-T-I. Awesome. And uh, yeah, you can see clips from my work and... All that good stuff. I love it. Yeah. Well, this has been really fun. Thank you for doing fun. the podcast. I learned some things about you that I didn't know before. Oh, good. I love the stuff about when making movies when you were a kid and well, thank you building for houses me. on this the beach. Is, this was fun sitting here in my it's so my, pretty my today. office and yeah, yeah, it's cool. I love cool. it. All right, All right. thanks. Bye. Bye. Dennis, bye. Thanks again to Victor Mignotti for being my guest and also letting me stay in his fabulous place in New York. All right. So this happened. Um, I went on a yoga retreat this past weekend to uh, Carlsbad, a a resort called La Costa. Um, It was my favorite yoga teacher, Jake, organized it. And um, I went with my friend Carlos and there was like 12 or 15 of us and we did classes. I literally feel like I've been gone for a week. I was gone for two days. Um, we went on Saturday, we went to the beach and it was beautiful. And we went to this place called the self-realization center, which I guess they have them here in LA. They have them all over the place, but it's just a lovely garden and people meditate and stuff. And I, we were there for like 30 minutes and I totally was realized in that time. I, I'm done. I've realized myself. So now we're back on the bus and heading back to the resort for hot tub time. So... I feel very good that I'm realized. Um, Actually, it was wonderful. I loved every second of it, and I'm really glad I did it. All right, so before I let you go, um, coming up in June, I'm going to have an interview with a filmmaker named Joey Kuhn. He directed probably my favorite movie from the festival circuit that I've seen in the last couple of years. It's called Those People. It's a gay love story, friendship story set against the backdrop of Manhattan, sort of super rich people... Uh, and one of the sons is like the son of a Bernie Madoff type. And so it's kind of like, it's a really interesting backdrop for a movie and, and I loved it very much. So anyway, I interviewed him already. Um, but it's not going to be posted till June because that's when the video on demand and DVD come out. But if you're in New York or LA, it is opening this coming Friday. If you're in LA, it's at the arena cinema. And if you're in New York, it's at the cinema village. So in honor of that uh, theatrical opening, I'm going to post this one question that I got with Joey Kuhn after we wrapped our original interview having to do with directing love scenes. So if you're in L.A. or New York, go see the movie, and uh, here's Joey. All right, this is a sneak preview for a coming episode of Dennis Anyone with filmmaker Joey Kuhn. His movie is called Those People. We're going to put the podcast up in June because that's when it comes out on 
DVD and everything, and video on demand. But for our New York, L.A. people, they can see it, like, this coming week. You can see it May 6th. It's opening at Cinema Village in New York and um, the Arena in L.A., I right. believe. And we're on um, Friday in New York. We're doing uh, a Q&A. Nice. And then on Saturday, I think, in L.A., we're doing a Q&A. And we're going to have some really amazing moderators. So Ira Sachs is doing the Q&A. On, Love it. On Friday, and then Saturday's a secret, but that's, uh, we'll awesome. have that info soon. Are yeah. they both? Okay, I love it. I love it. Okay, something I didn't ask you about in our, our wonderful interview is uh, you have some very handsome men in your movie, <laughs> and there's some romance and some sex and stuff. How do you approach those scenes? Um, you know, a lot of being a director is kind of setting the tone and mood for the set. Right. And you just have to make it a safe space for these actors to kind of explore these very intimate moments. Um, so for the sex scenes, we had closed sets, you know, it's just the necessary people. It's the cinematographer and the first assistant camera, the sound person and me, um, and the actors. And, you know, I just want to make them feel comfortable. Um, so yeah, it's just about setting the environment. I found when I had like kissing scenes and stuff like that, there's something exciting about it. Mm -hmm. It's not like a turn on in a pervy way, but it is exciting. Well, it's a real moment of connection. Yeah. It's not fake. You're actually, you know, engaging with each other's bodies. And I think there's something for human beings when they connect that way. It's like Mm -hmm. the heightened, Mm -hmm. it's the, it's like one of the peak experiences of life or the most open, vulnerable, passionate, whatever. You know, the thing is also, it was important to me that those sex scenes weren't gratuitous. Like they're there uh, for the story and they're respectful and I thought a lot about those sex scenes. And they're, you know, they're intricately choreographed. Like, there's uh, this uh, scene in the middle of the movie where um, these three characters, something happens. And right. uh, it gets, gets a little sexy. But th- that, was, that was choreographed. And you make sure that you go through all the emotional beats. It's not just sex. It's like, what, where, where's the emotion of this character throughout and when does it change? Yeah. Um, and then I have to say the, the one sex scene in it, the one like real sex scene um, that the stranger called the surprisingly tender anal sex scene. <laughs> the stranger it. called the surprisingly, <laughs> surprisingly tender. Um, so th- my doll may also say that. Surprisingly yeah. tender anal sex. <laughs> yes. Uh, um, but it was important for me to show the men having sex face to face. Because do you know how many straight people don't know that gay men can have sex missionary position like a, like any straight person? Right. So that was very purposeful. That's really interesting. That Charlie and Tim faced each other. Yes. Yeah. It's a great moment. And, you, and, and it's also like movies sort of imply that everything goes without a hitch. Nobody's nervous. Um, everything works perfectly. They, mm-hmm. And that's not the experience. No. And know, so to see sort of... The, the rea- a little bit something a little more realistic yeah. is lovely. Thanks. You know, um, some people, uh, some of those scenes, the actors were super gung ho, and some, some they had a little bit of nerves, and there was a lot of wine involved. Okay, there we go. <laughs> you go. You know, as long as it's yeah. in the budget. Well, go see those people if you're in New York and LA. Um, it, you will not be sorry, and uh, it, it will have more with Joey in a longer podcast coming up in June when you can watch it on DVD and VOD. So, thank you, Joey. Thank you. Thanks, Joey. We're going to have the full interview with him in June. Thank you also to Victor Mignotti, and thank you for listening. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.